Just when you thought our wise overlords in government couldn't possibly make our economic situation any worse, my hometown of Minneapolis and St. Paul dares to dream that impossible dream and make the problem exponentially worse with the passage of what both advocates and detractors are calling the most strict rent control laws in the nation ever. So today on Legalese, we have our latest installment of a segment that I do called Ignorance of the Law, and today we will be looking at the ignorance of rent control. Hey, greetings, and welcome back to Legalese. I am your host, Bob. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Uh, and especially if you're new to the program, I would like to welcome you. Uh, this is a podcast where we're mostly going to be discussing current events in law, politics, and culture. Uh, now, real quick, you can find the show on a number of different formats and platforms. We have a video version on Rumble, YouTube, and Odyssey. Uh, you can find an audio-only version on Anchor and Apple Podcasts. Uh, you could go join the Legalese community I have over on Locals.com. And you can do all of those super awesome things and read a bunch of articles that I've written, mostly on issues of constitutional law, over on my Substack page. And you can find links to all of those down in this video's description. So, as I mentioned, today in our segment, we are going to be looking at uh, the stupidity, ignorance, and hypocrisy of laws that are in the best of circumstances, totally ineffective, and really more often than not, actively harmful. Now we do this to demonstrate that uh, while it may be true, as the old saying goes, that ignorance is no excuse for breaking the law, that we intend to demonstrate that ignorance is often an excuse for making and enforcing the law. So today's uh, segment, uh, as I kind of alluded to earlier, hits close to home for me in a number of different ways, both literally and figuratively, because the rent control law that we will be discussing is one that was passed here in my hometown in the Twin Cities, where I have lived for virtually my entire life. And as I said, this new rent control is being seen by both its advocates and its detractors as the strictest rent control law anywhere in the United States. Really, the only place we disagree on this is whether that is a good or a bad thing. Now, because it was passed by a ballot referendum... Uh, it was an initiative that I uh, had advocated strongly against, I, I, I mean, at least here locally, not on the show really, but uh, really to anyone who would listen. However, uh, given Minneapolis is a city whose local politics have a uh, progressive supermajority permanently, uh, this meant that very few people were willing to listen and vote against it. And my choice to vote against it was really nothing more than a symbolic act since there was no question it was going to pass overwhelmingly. However, the reason I want to talk about it here today is because, uh, well, first of all, really all it took to predict how badly wrong this was going to go was a cursory understanding of free market economics and inability to do a comparative analysis of past rent control laws and their effects and consequences. Now, what's interesting is how fast we are seeing the results from this because the law has not even in Minneapolis at least gone into effect yet and 
We are already seeing many of the effects that many of us emphatically insisted were what would make this rent control law a terrible idea that would help the rich and hurt the poor. Uh, those are already coming to pass. Now, before we get you talking about the particular rent control initiative that I'm speaking of here in the Twin Cities, uh, I wanted to uh, take a little bit of time and look at the kind of arguments that usually precede these calls for rent control. And recently, uh, John Oliver spent the bulk of his show making just such an argument. And he proved that high housing costs are no laughing matter, uh, quite literally, uh, because he devoted over 20 minutes of his show uh, to this problem during a segment of his HBO show last week tonight. And I have been told that John Oliver is a comedian, so I can only chalk up the fact that at no point did his show seem to say anything remotely funny uh, to the serious nature of the issue of rising rents and the attendant problems of housing unaffordability and instability that those can't cause. Hey, uh. Yeah, rent is skyrocketing, and that is the last thing that you want to hear is on the rise, along with COVID cases, murder rates, and Henry Kissinger's life expectancy. <laughs> the bitch just won't quit, will he? <laughs> the median monthly asking rent in the US surpassed $2,000 for the first time last month. That is up 15% since the same time last year, well above the rate of inflation. And it's up over 30% in cities like Cincinnati, Seattle and Nashville and nearly 50% in Austin. You or someone you know may well be struggling to find a place right now or are being priced out of where you currently live by your landlord. But the fact is... Now, rising rents are a very real phenomenon. Uh, however, they are driven by a mismatch in many cities between the number of homes that are being built and the number of people who would like to live in them and... You also need to consider that the wedge between supply and demand is mostly created uh, by a city's elaborate zoning codes, price regulations, and permitting process that all combine to reduce housing availability and raise price. It really should be no surprise that rents are high when a majority of land in major cities is now effectively off limits to new development. It often takes years to approve whatever new housing is allowed, if it is allowed, and some of those units always have to be given away at below market rates. Now, the details of these restrictions are uh, something of a wonky topic for sure. Uh, and, I mean, one only expects so much depth or insight from a comedian uh, giving an explanation of this all, but uh, even allowing for that handicap, Oliver's treatment of the housing supply issue proves to be uh, superficial, brief, and very confused. So he either misunderstands or fails to explore uh, any of uh, the things I just mentioned, the link between government regulation, housing supply, and housing market outcomes. And his perfunctory explanation of it serves really only as a brief prelude to his real attack on who he considers the real villains of the story, and that is the greedy private landlords who are raising rents and evicting tenants because apparently every landlord all just got really, uh, you know, out of control greedy at the very same time for no particular reason. 
Now, furthermore, the solutions he puts forward have little to do with eliminating the actual needless and harmful regulatory barriers to new supply, and he instead calls for acts that will only make the problem worse by legally constraining landlords' ability to raise rents and evict tenants and declaring housing a federally funded government-provided right. Now, Oliver starts off his segment well enough, I suppose. Combat that. And let's start with understanding our current housing supply. You'll often hear that high rents are a supply and demand issue. Basically, too many renters, not enough units. And that is partially true, because there are currently not nearly enough affordable units in the US, which is a little... However, things go downhill pretty fast, as Oliver adds that the supply narrative is, as he puts it, quote, a little weird because you probably see new buildings cropping up all the time, end quote. So apartments are being built, but the problem is, thanks in part to local NIMBY opposition to more affordable multifamily housing, it's mainly been at the high end. In fact, in the last three decades, the national stock of rental units available actually grew by more than 13 million, but crucially, the number of units at the lowest end of the market fell by nearly 4 million. That might be why, if you've ever tried to search for affordable apartments in your area, Google just says, nope. <laughs> and this serious lack of new affordable housing has enabled landlords to charge higher rents for the units that... Now, that statement that I just played uh, demonstrates uh, a very common uh, and easy-to-make but very serious misunderstanding of how housing markets actually work. You see, a lack of affordable housing doesn't enable landlords to charge higher rents on existing units. Rather, a lack of housing per se allows landlords to charge higher rates for the units that exist, which make them unaffordable. Now, the corollary is that building new housing, even high-end housing, improves affordability for everyone by absorbing the demand of high-income renters who are no longer bidding up the cost of the older and naturally cheaper housing units. There is a growing body of empirical research that shows this is a fact and not just some sort of free market ideal, and I will have links to uh, a, a number of different studies which I am uh, speaking to uh, when I talk about this body of research, and you will find links to those all down in the video description. I encourage you to go check them out and give them a read. They are very, very good. So anyways, now, Oliver instead just chooses to heap all of the blame on the greed and avarice of landlords who... Uh, he will say are unscrup unscrupulously raising prices uh, because a lack of capital A affordable housing where low rents are subsidized by the government or mandated through rent control. And it's this misidentified starting point that leads him to support a lot of very counterproductive solutions. Evidence of those solutions failure is treated as a need for more intervention still. So to fix the problem, he is calling for more of the thing that caused the problem. So if you are wondering why your rent is going up, it may well be because your landlord sees the current affordable housing crisis as a chance to reset market rates. And in a lot of the country, there are very few legal constraints to stop them doing that. 
You may have heard of rent control, which strictly limits how much a landlord can charge you, but vanishingly few people have access to that anymore. More commonly, there's rent stabilisation, which in theory means that on certain older properties, landlords can only raise the rent by a certain percentage per year. But only two states and D.C. require it, and more than 30 states have actually passed laws banning it. Now, here where Oliver argues that we need rent stabilization, uh, which, again, is a form of rent control that caps price increases at a certain percentage per year in order to improve affordability. Uh, now, Oliver's statement here is incredibly misleading when he says that only two states, California, Oregon, and then additionally D.C., mandate rent stabilization is actually a common policy in America's most expensive cities. I mean, in San Francisco, for example, which is a synonym for housing unaffordability and dysfunction, about 40% of the city's housing stock and nearly two-thirds of the rental housing stock is covered by the city's decades-old rent stabilization program. Uh, likewise, in New York City, another epicenter of the country's housing affordability crisis, close to half of the city's 2.1 million rental housing units are rent stabilized. Now, one criticism of rent stabilization is that rents are permitted to grow at a slower rate than operating costs, forcing building owners to cut back on maintenance and other expenses. And Oliver acknowledges the reality of deferred maintenance, but attributes it to loopholes in rent stabilization uh, as he considers them to be things that are exploited by devious landlords. And even when protections exist, landlords can find ways around them. For instance, they might try and force rent-stabilised tenants out by allowing a property to fall into disrepair or by harassing them with incessant construction until they voluntarily leave. Isn't that just so odd that landlords will try to force tenants out by both repairing a unit and not repairing a unit. It's, it's almost as though there's nothing they can do that is not seen as them acting as a greedy, selfish landlord. They fix a place, they're a bad landlord. If they don't fix a place, they're a bad landlord. Oliver just heaps criticism on landlords for not accepting things like housing vouchers and discriminating against tenants who have previously been evicted. Now, I think in good faith, People can disagree on how rational or fair it is for landlords to take uh, past evictions into account when considering whether to rent to a tenant or whether or not to accept a housing voucher. Now, surveys of landlords find that many landlords don't accept vouchers because the inspection and paperwork that come with the program raises the cost and delays their ability to rent out the units. And the federal government's own research has also found landlords' willingness to accept vouchers fails in tight rental markets where supply is limited and tenants are easier to come by. In a world of housing abundance, most landlords would likely be willing to take a chance on a once-evicted tenant or put up with the bureaucracy that comes with a housing voucher uh, than let a unit sit vacant and unproductive. However, Oliver really doesn't explore uh, either of those possibilities very much at all. Um, 
he does, to his credit, say we should make housing vouchers easier to accept. However, then he speeds to what is his grand conclusion. Instead, we need to agree housing is a human right. And that is not actually just some empty slogan like Subway's Eat Fresh or Gatorade's <laughs> Is It... Now, to guarantee that right, Oliver suggests that we massively increase federal rental assistance and federal funding for affordable housing construction. Now, that would be coupled with expunging tenants' eviction records, guaranteeing tenants a right to a lawyer in eviction proceedings, and ending the mortgage interest deduction. Now, the trouble is that the former two solutions aren't going to do much, if any, good if one doesn't also repeal the same restrictions that are already preventing new private housing from being built. And in fact, you can pretty much guarantee it will only make the problem worse. And dumping a bunch of housing vouchers into an already supply-constrained housing market will only serve to raise prices. If there are already not enough units and it's difficult to build more, landlords can easily just raise prices to capture the value of the new vouchers without any fear of losing their customers. And so everyone who doesn't receive a housing voucher will see their housing costs go up. The government will have to perpetually increase voucher funding to try and stay ahead of the higher prices that they themselves are causing. And meanwhile, the same regulations and approval process that is stopping developers uh, from building the much maligned luxury high-rises also prevents the construction of affordable high-rises. No amount of federal money is going to change the fact that if your city takes multiple years to approve, approve a new multifamily development on one of the very few properties where it's even legal, that you're going to be doing much good. And indeed, throwing a bunch of federal money into affording housing construction will just crowd out private construction. A number of studies show that new price-restricted affordable housing will raise nearby home prices. So, people who qualify for an affordable housing voucher will benefit. Those who don't are back to fighting each other for what is now an even more limited and higher cost supply of market rate units. So, turning to the issue of rent control here in the Twin Cities. Yes, it is true. Rents have reached record highs, but have no fear renters. For the Minnesota cities of St. Paul and Minneapolis are very progressive and have persuaded people to vote for rent control. We'll finally punish those greedy landlords. Except, of course, that profits are what persuade a builder to build things in the first place. So when profits are high, other builders build. That's what creates more housing, and that's what lowers rent. You put limits on prices, and all those evil, greedy landlords will just find other places to build. The fact is, whenever rent control is imposed, the supply of rental housing declines. So, in November of 2021, uh, in St. Paul, 
voters passed an ordinance that limits annual rent increases citywide to 3% and includes none of the typical allowances or exemptions we usually see uh, to account for things such as inflation, vacancies, and new construction. Now, this version of rent control in Minneapolis, unlike St. Paul, has not actually actively gone into effect yet. But, despite that, we are already seeing developers uh, pulling permit applications, financiers walking away from projects, and city officials who are already rushing to amend the terms of the law. And what's more, in fact, our state lawmakers are working to repeal it entirely. Now, the activists who wrote the ordinance and campaigned for its passage have argued that any weakening of this policy will undermine stability and affordability that it is supposed to provide for those in St. Paul who are hard-pressed to find a place that they can afford. But, if you are a builder, why would you enter a market where it seems like the government is actively trying to hurt you? And that the Minneapolis version of this law has not yet gone into effect likely explains why building permits rose 65% in Minneapolis last winter, while in St. Paul they fell 61%. Now, those very, very similar numbers uh, correlate for a very good reason. Now, St. Paul Mayor Melvin Carter, who initially not only voted for rent control, but was one of its biggest advocates initially, is now having second thoughts. Now he is beginning to realize, as he said, that we are turning off the supply of new housing, and this is going to be disastrous. So, have the other progressive politicians learned from St. Paul's mistake? <laughs> no, they still live in their little fairy world where everything worked exactly as they think it will. For example, Minneapolis City Council member Aisha Chuktai is on record saying, I want to follow St. Paul's lead. And this is something she said very recently. I believe this was in an interview uh, that was done with Reason.com uh, about a month ago. And yet she is claiming, contrary to the massive body of evidence proving her wrong, that rent control will not dry up the supply of housing. Now, we already see the effects of the yet-unenforced Minneapolis law tanking property values and showering most of its benefits on already well-off tenants. Uh, and this is according to a new study uh, published in March on SSRN by University of Southern California, Marshall School of Business professors uh, Kenneth Aaron and Marco Giacoletti. They contend that the poorest tenants will see relatively few benefits from the new law and instead... The two argue that the pattern of, of falling property values in St. Paul after the passage of rent control shows that better-off renters will reap the biggest gains from the law. Now, in this study, the 
Authors chart home sale prices between January of 2018 and January of 2022 in St. Paul and the surrounding five counties. They find that the introduction of rent control caused a 6 to 7% decline in real estate values in St. Paul and up to a 13% decline in property values for rental properties, specifically compared to neighboring jurisdictions. Now, because uh, the pandemic spurred a movement from city centers to the suburbs, uh, Aaron and Gia Coletti have also compared changes in property values in St. Paul to other comparable metro areas such as St. Louis, Kansas City, Indianapolis, Denver, and Nashville. And they still find a rent control-induced fall in property values of around 6 to 8% in St. Paul. Now, rent control proponents uh, tend to look at these results and say it's actually evidence of their policy working. Because the purpose of the policy, after all, is to preserve affordable housing and rent control wouldn't be causing property values to fall unless it was also constraining future rent increases. Now, while the standard anti-rent control counter-argument to this point would be that uh, those reduced property values also discourage developers from building new housing and encourage landlords to sell off existing units to uh, owner-occupiers. Incumbent tenants get lower rents, but newer uh, newcomers to the city have a harder time finding housing, period. And even those lower rents come at the expense of well of less well-maintained units. However, uh, Aaron and Gia Coletti actually don't spend much time on these issues of the housing supply and quality uh, in their study. Their paper finds a small but statistically significant drop-off in new housing permits after the passage of rent control in St. Paul. Instead, they focus on which tenants actually reap the most benefits from constrained rent increases. And to do this, they separate census blocks in St. Paul into four categories based on whether the median income of owners and renters were higher or lower than the city's medium income. They found that the largest decline in rent control-induced home values happened in census blocks where the owners had lower incomes than the median homeowner and renters had higher incomes than the median renter. In those blocks, home values declined by 8.5% on average. While the next steepest decline happened in census blocks where both the renter and homeowner's incomes were higher than median renter and homeowner incomes. There, home values declined by 4.3%. Conversely, in areas with wealthier owners and poorer renters, we saw property values decline by less than 8%. Now, Aaron and Gia Coletti say that this is evidence that the rents are constrained, mostly in neighborhoods where incomes are high across the board or where renters' income outstrips owners' income. This implies 
that the impact of this rent control is, at the very least, poorly targeted, they write. And that, essentially, the largest transfer of wealth is from relatively low-income owners to relatively high-income renters. Now, this is an early study of a policy whose details are still being hammered out, so the paper's findings aren't uh, hardly definite, but the results do match the results that we see with other similar rent control policies that have been uh, enacted across the country. So, in a comprehensive 2019 analysis of rent stabilization in New York uh, City that was done by the Wall Street Journal, they similarly found that well-off tenants were receiving the biggest discounts on rent. That same year, the New York legislature amended rent stabilization to make it harder for landlords to raise rents. The result, just like in St. Paul, was a steep fall in the value for rent-regulated properties. So, we will see how this goes when Minneapolis follows St. Paul's lead to limit residential rent increases to 3% a year, even, as I said before, if there is a change in occupancy. And I'm sure we will experience all of the same benefits that St. Paul has been blessed with, uh, which are none, and we will have none of the crippling issues that St. Paul has been burdened with. Uh, which are myriad. But why worry about a few tiny details like, I don't know, the complete failure of everything you expected to gain by passing a rent control law whose benefit never actually materializes? After all, it must have been the right thing to do because rent control sounds like a great idea that was passed with the best of intentions and in the end, surely that must be justification enough. Even if the initiatives did not account for inflation and applied the initiative to new construction, discouraging housing construction and investment, this is why multifamily building permits are down over 80% in St. Paul while we see them ramping up in the rest of the state. But of course, progressives, Democrats, and socialists, uh, and when I say socialists, I am... Um, not trying to use it in the derogatory conservative sense where I just mean any politician or program I don't like. I mean, this woman, Aisha Shutai, who we just talked about a second ago, self-identifies as a socialist, as do several other members of the Minneapolis City Council. So I mean it very literally. Anyways, I digress. As I was saying, perhaps my negative outlook comes from a fundamental disagreement that uh, is between myself and uh, these Democrats, progressives, and socialists uh, that simply come from two very different interpretations of what a good outcome would look like. Now, whereas I would define a good outcome as a program that actually helps the people that it was meant to help, I think that the left tend to consider a good outcome any outcome in which they feel as though the program was intended to look out for the little guy. And of course, it's precisely that kind of selfless compassion that makes Democrats better people than the rest of us.
and in a city like Minneapolis that is controlled by a supermajority faction of progressives, that must be demonstrative of the fact that they care much, much more than the rest of us, making them much, much better people than the rest of us. But in the end, I think this explains why the late economist Walter Williams said, short of aerial bombardment, the best way to destroy a city is through rent controls. And this also explains how it is exactly that St. Paul has been come to be seen as the patron saint of tent makers. All right, well, anyways, that's really all I got for you guys today. Uh, thank you so much for joining me for this discussion of how rent control laws prove that ignorance of the law may be no excuse for breaking the law, but it is an excuse for making and enforcing the law. Now, is there a stupid, counterproductive, or hypocritical law that you can think of that you would like to see me cover on a future installment of Ignorance of the Law? If so, let me know by leaving a comment uh, or send an email to the show to legalese at gmx.us. So until next time, thanks for watching, uh, and be sure uh, to help me with Al Gore's rhythm. I, I mean the YouTube algorithm by hitting that little thumbs up button if you like the episode. If you dislike the episode, you can go ahead and hit the thumbsy downy button. And if you really dislike the episode, go ahead and hit that thumbsy downy button twice just to make sure I know. Uh, now, feel free to leave me a comment. Let me know what you thought about this episode or this topic in general. Uh, and make sure to subscribe to the channel to make sure you always know when new videos come out. Uh, like one that I'm already working on now about two landlords who are suing over this precise law as an unconstitutional violation of the takings clause. So I think that is a really uh, fascinating angle to all of this, and I think that is an episode that you guys won't want to miss. So make sure to subscribe so you find out when new episodes like that drop. So I guess until next time, uh, this has been Bob for Legalese. Uh, and of course, as always, Cartago de Lenda Est.